The Word of God says, Exodus 20, verse 1, and God spoke, or God said, all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. That's the Word of God for you today, for you as his people, you as his sons and his daughters. And I pray that in an era and a season of many questions and great uncertainty, that it would secure you today and give you great confidence on the foundation in which you stand. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So I would imagine that most of you at some point in your lives have gone to participate in in that great American traditional event that is known as the carnival or the fair. Uh, Some of these are traveling institutions that pop up in small towns all over the country. Some are, are permanent locations such as the State Fair of Texas where our family, when I was growing up, every October, we would take a day. In fact, they used to give you a day out of school called Fair Day, so you could go to the fair. And we would go, and we would ride the rides, and we would eat all kinds of utterly decadent fried food. They had fried Snickers bars. They had fried butter. They had fried cookie dough, fried corny dogs. It was the Olympics of decadent fried food eating, and I loved every minute. And then, as always, there were the carnival or the fair games, right? And those games, regardless of what fair you've gone to, they're just in a series of booths, and they're all lined up together, and, and there are in these booths vendors. And as you're walking along, each one of those vendors is calling out to you. They're kind of like salesmen or saleswomen, and they're saying, hey, step right up. Right? That's, that's their catchphrase. Step right up, and you can win, and they'll take their little stick, and they'll hit the teddy bear or whatever it is you can win the, the, this prize. And, and so they're trying to convince you that you really have a great chance to win, right? And so one year, Lee and I, the kids are little, and we're, I, I think we're actually down at, at the boardwalk at Disney, and we're going through the booths with all the games, and we come to one that's a basketball shooting game. Well, I can't resist. And so as Lee rolls her eyes, I step up, and I plunk down $5 for the chance to win a $2 basketball. But it was, it was a great basketball. It was cut. You, if you won, you could pick a rubber basketball with the color and logo of your favorite college team. So the grace of God was upon me. One shot, I make it. I win a ball. That goes to son number one. I have two sons. Another $5, another miracle of God. I shoot that. I make a second shot. I now have two basketballs. I have two sons. Everything's good. Whoops. I have a third child. She's a little girl, and at that time, she has spotted a teddy bear that she wants that's three booths away. And so I go down there, and that's the game where you put down $5, and you get three balls, and you have to throw them in one of those, what looks like an old milk urn, and the the top kind of goes out like that, but the space to get the ball in is virtually non-existent. But Okay, I said, all right, so I plunked down my $5, three throws, three misses, Kaylee begins to cry because she thinks I don't love her. I, 
I made the basket for the boys, but I can't throw the ball into the milk urn, so she must not be loved. So another $5, three misses, another $5, three more misses. Finally, I say to the vendor, how much to just buy the bear? $25 later, I now have a teddy bear with my daughter and we're walking away as my wife is reminding me that I have fallen prey to one of the greatest con games that exists in our country today. It's not actually set up to have you win. The odds are stacked against you. In fact, most of the time, it's possible that you can win, but most of the time you're gonna lose. Well, friends, this morning, in 21st century America, I want to invite you like one of those carnival vendors. I want to say, step right up, because you and I today, whether we know it or not, are taking part in a grand religious carnival where there are booths set up of every theological and spiritual variety, and they're all trying to communicate to you, oh, come try our game. This is the one that's going to give you the best chance to win. Come do this, and you'll be happy. Come try this, and you'll be free. Come do this, and you're going to find meaning and purpose and life. And the problem with that is that in the last 20 to 25 years, we've sort of slid into this notion that Christianity is just one booth among the many vendors calling out saying, hey, come play our game. But we've lost some of our uniqueness, some of the rightful biblical exclusivity of the gospel. We're just one truth among many truths that sort of all go up the same mountain and eventually will reach God, or so the culture tells us, instead of a uniquely historic event in human time that has changed all of human history and in fact has changed eternity for so many, many people. And friends, this has happened in a time of perhaps the greatest spiritual seeking and searching in the history of our country. Now, there may have been other seasons where we have sought spiritual truth and understanding as much as we do today. But I don't believe there's ever been a time where we have, are seeking spiritual things more. And to be honest with you, I think so much of it began 20 years ago yesterday. Because 20 years ago yesterday, and it's really amazing to me that so many people who are in this room don't have any memory of that. But it was a day when this country lost her innocence. We lost that sense that we were somehow protected, that we were invulnerable. Nobody could reach us. And then we got attacked on our own land. And all of a sudden, our illusions of security got shattered. And people, on that day 20 years ago, there was no Facebook. Facebook didn't get created till 2004. Twitter came online in 2006. So all of us sat in front of a television and we listened to one of three or four networks. And the most amazing thing happened. In the church that I served that night, it was packed with people who wanted to pray. And maybe for those of you who are with age, you remember 
The next Sunday, churches across the country were packed. I'll never forget it. It was like Christmas and Easter combined. We couldn't hold all the people who wanted to come to church in Fort Myers that day. But sadly, it was just six weeks later, statisticians tell us today, that church attendance in America had dwindled right back down to where it was before 9-11. Because people had gone back to trying to find security amongst the carnival. They wanted to try in their expressive individualism what it was that they believed, what it was that worked for them. And for the last 20 years, we've seen a culture searching. We've seen a culture seeking. But what we failed to see, what, what has the church offered in that? I don't know that we've offered as much as we should have. There was an article that came out in Newsweek a few months ago that wrote this. There is a deep vexing national anxiety about the nagging sense that unlimited personal freedom and rampaging materialism yield only greater hunger and lonelier nights. That the more men and women embrace the idea that they are free to choose whatever they want, the more they are left with a sense of being hungry and a dreadful sense of being alone. So as we've been meandering up and down the carnival, the grand religious carnival, we find ourselves more hungry and more alone. It was Andrew Del Banco at Columbia University who said that people seem to be holding back the melancholy suspicion that we live in a world without meaning. Alistair Begg, a pastor in Cleveland, said, we've become calloused in our lives to what only a few short years ago would have sent us to our bathrooms retching. And he goes on to describe some of those things which for the sake of our children I will not read to you, but his final question is where is the deep spiritual conviction which would lead a culture to cry out? It's not there. And what's happened in the church is when we allow ourselves to be one among many at the carnival, that we render God impotent that we become irrelevant to the dying souls in our culture because we are not standing distinct from the voices at the carnival. People, God has not called the church to mimic the culture. God has called the church to create and change and transform the culture. That's who we are to be in Jesus Christ, which is why therein the Ten Commandments matter because they are the foundation that we believe. They are the sense of the things on which we stand, that we ascribe to God certain attributes that are true, one of which is he's called us to live in particular ways. And so friends, if we believe that that is true, if we ascribe to God the characteristics that we do, then how in the world how in the world can we begin to live as those people? Not part of the carnival, but distinct from it. Because please understand, if we mimic the culture, we're not attractive. Because people are searching and seeking. They're looking in the culture. And they have found the culture wanting. If we look just like the culture, why would they come to us? 
We are actually attractive by what makes us distinctly different. And that's what I want to try to show you this morning in just the prologue to the Ten Commandments. Because there's something so important about what God says before he ever gives us the law. And see, we get all hung up on this idea. The culture does that Christianity is rules, regulations. you got to follow this and it's burdensome and all that. And we miss the freedom and the simplicity of faith. And so I want you to see what he says. Just these two verses, they're packed with meaning. What he says before he ever gives us the law. Number one, the reasonableness, the authenticity, the authority of the Ten Commandments are all grounded in who gives them, in who speaks them. Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, and God said, if we ascribe to God the qualities that we say we do, that God is majestic, that God is holy, that God is perfect, that God is kind and good, then we should stand back and say, you know what? If God said it, and he's all these things, then all I need do is become obedient to them. I am going to do what God says and walk in what he says is the path of life, because God said, and that has to be enough. We might not understand them all. We might not agree with everything that he says to us in his word. But because of who he is, even if I don't understand it or I disagree, I realize God is all this and I'm not, so I'm gonna go ahead and do what he says, not what I think. Same thing happened to Peter when he was in the boat and he was fishing and Jesus comes up and says, yo, Peter, throw your net on the other side. And Peter's been fishing all day and he's tired. And how does he answer Jesus, do you remember? He says, because you say so, I will. And people, there's a, there's a wonderful freedom in that, isn't there? There's a simplicity to that truth that I love, that I, I don't have to spend hours trying to figure it out or understand it. In my faith, it can be as simple as, well, God said it, and I believe in who God is, therefore, I might not understand it all or agree with everything, but I'm human and he's divine, so I'm gonna do what he says. You know, when I was probably nine or 10 years old, I had one of those critical moments in my young life when in my family, in my household, I had certain chores that I had to do in order to get an allowance. But about nine or 10, I realized that a lot of my friends got an allowance and they didn't have to do chores. And this, I thought, hugely unfair. And so one day, I put my foot down to my mother and it was time to do chores. And I said, mom, I'm not doing those anymore. And she said, really? And I said, no. I said, because a lot of my friends get an allowance and they don't have to do anything. So why do I have to? And she said, very succinctly, David, I don't care what you think, but you're going to do your chores because I'm your mother and I say so. You ever said that to your kids? They don't need to understand, they're children. They're not gonna understand why you as a parent are going to have them do certain things like chores in order to earn money. And I would tell you that there are a lot of children who grow up today and they have not a clue about authority because we as parents haven't taught them. 
I think it's a pretty important lesson to say to your kids, you know what? I don't owe you an explanation. I'm your parent. I tell you what to do and you do what I say because I'm your dad. And that's just how it works. We teach our kids authority in that sense. That's what God is saying before he even gives the 10 commandments. He says, you're my children. You're gonna be rebellious. You're not always gonna understand, not always gonna make sense to you, but guess what? I'm your father and you need to do it, why? Because I say. And there's just this glorious, wonderful simplicity about that that I absolutely love. But we go on, we're rebellious children, we want more reasons, well guess what? God gives us more reasons. He doesn't just leave it at because I say so, you need to. But we go back and we recognize the second thing is in that same verse, those same three words, and God said, we just sang it, and God said, is how the scripture begins. And there's a reason why the biblical author begins Exodus 20 with those three words, because he's calling Israel and all the people who would have heard that back to the very beginning, back to creation, when the earth was formless and dark. And Genesis 1-3 says, and God said, let there be light. And the darkness was dispelled. God said, let the stars and the moon and the sun come into existence. And the stars were flung across the sky. And God spoke and animals created. God spoke and the mountains rose. God spoke and the seas were filled. God spoke and humanity came into existence. And then we read from Deuteronomy 4.32. And now ask about the former days, long before your time. From the day God created man on the earth, ask from one end of the heavens to the other. Here's the question. Has anything so great as this ever happened? Or has anything like it been heard of? Keep his decrees and commands, which I am giving you today, so that it may go well with you and your children after you, and that you may live long in the land the Lord your God gives you for all time. What is Moses saying? He's saying that never in the history of the world has anything so great happened since the creation of the world than the creation of the laws and the commands of God, which the people are being called to obey. He says the word of God came into existence with the same glory and the same magnificence as the very creation of the world. And God said, and things were created. And God said, and the word came into existence. And so with that in our minds, even more veracity and authority to the word of God because it's just as sacred, it's just as miraculous that we have it, that we can read it, and that we can know God through it. And then he goes on in verse two, and he says, I am the Lord. He says, and God said, first words, I am the Lord. Now, in some sense, that's just supporting my first point that we pay attention to it because of who said it. But this is more than that. When he says, I am the Lord, God is speaking directly to the culture in which the Israelites existed that was largely a dominant pagan culture where there were hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of pagan gods. And so when God says, I am the Lord, the word Lord in Hebrew is the word Elohim Yahweh, which means Lord, and that connotation or the meaning of that word Elohim is one of power and grandeur and greatness, and the word Yahweh was the name of God. 
It was the word that was never to be spoken, the name of God, never to be spoken above a whisper. So in essence, when God says, I am the Lord, he's naming himself. He is ascribing to himself power and authority and is in essence ending the grand religious carnival. He's saying to Israel, I am the Lord, meaning there aren't any others. All those others that you're worshiping, they're just empty pieces of metal. They're things that you've made, but they have no power. They have no authority. They have no majesty. I'm the Lord. My name is Yahweh. And the carnival is over. And friends, in a very real sense, that should give us great confidence. That should give us a great sense of security that the God that we worship is the only true and living God revealed to us in and through the people of Israel in the Old Testament and then again in and through Jesus Christ in the New. By the death and resurrection of Jesus, he shows us, I am the Lord God. Contrary again. What is this whole series about? Counterculture. The culture is going to say one thing. The scripture is going to answer it with something else. The culture is going to say, as I alluded to earlier, that there are many gods, all of whom lead up the road. Uh, all roads lead up to the same spot at the top of the mountain. They all get to God eventually. And what God is saying is that's actually not true. That there's just one God who redeems and one God who saves. So on the one hand, I understand that that gives you that should give you security, should give you confidence that you worship the one true living God. But on the other hand, I can see how that would give you a little bit of pause, maybe a little bit of doubt that that sounds awfully exclusive, that we're going to say to the world, hey, I'm on the winning side and you're not. Right? That, that doesn't sound warm and inviting, which is why the next sentence is so important. Because he says, I am the Lord your God, and Deuteronomy 4 says, acknowledge and take to heart this day that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth below, and there is no other. The carnival is over, but I am the Lord you God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. So before he ever gives laws and commands, he says, remember, he said, I'm the one who loved you. I'm the one who saved you from your slavery. Before I ever gave you laws and commands on which your salvation was dependent, I'm the one who sent all the plagues to Pharaoh and got him to ultimately release you from 400 years of suffering. I'm the one who parted the Red Sea and led you through into the wilderness and ultimately to the promised land. I'm your redeemer. I'm your savior. And all that points us ultimately to the greater Moses, the one we know in Jesus who led us on a greater exodus, not just from bondage and slavery on the earth, but from our bondage to sin and death. And our greater Moses, Jesus, leads us through the waters of our baptism, the waters of his forgiveness, the waters of his shed blood, so that a hundred billion failures, as we just sang, disappear from the judgment books of God. And we stand instead righteously before him with the hope of the promised land. 
before us. Friends, if you live today in the absence of Jesus, then the Ten Commandments and the laws of God and the scriptures in general will always be a burden to you that you can never keep and you'll never understand. But when you live in the presence of Jesus, then the laws of God and the commands of God and the words of scripture that call us to righteous living and call us to the path of life, they will always be life-giving because they are a mirror that we hold up to our lives that points us to a savior. You know how mirrors work, right? When you get up in the morning, I don't know, I found this to be true. We spend a lot of time in front of mirrors, right? Kevin Burkett spends a lot of time in the morning and looking at the mirror. Why? Because there's so much wrong there, right? There's, he's got so much work to do. And you wake up in the morning and you look in the mirror and some of us go, oh, God. And, and then what do you do? You go in for a closer look. You know, and you're picking at this and at that. And if you're like me, I'm like, oh my gosh, Lee, you got to come pop this zit. Right? You realize there's something wrong with you that requires outside help. That's the law of God. That's the Ten Commandments. That's why it's such a gift. It's because we're able to look at it and go, yikes. There's so much there, and I can't fix any of it. But before he gave us any of that law, he said, I'm your redeemer. I'm the one you call. I'm the one to redeem and save you, which is different than every other vendor barking at you to come try their wares. Has any other God incarnated himself? Has any other God humbled himself? Has any other God led you through the waters of suffering and death and set you free to new life? Has any other God forgiven you? Has any other God been raised from the dead and overcome sin and death? Friends, what we find in the hope of the gospel today is our Redeemer and our Savior who sets us free so we stand in the midst of all the chaos on what we know to be true. God revealed in Jesus, the author of history and the changer and transformer of it, and we give our lives to him. Now, we don't, it's not forced. You know, it's like the owner's manual in your car. It says put gasoline in there. If you want to put orange juice in there, that's your call. Totally up to you. It's not going to work very well. But you can. But see, the Redeemer comes and says, oh, you put the orange juice in. I can still fix that because you belong to me. He's the Redeemer. He's our Savior. And in all the chaos of our world today, we stand on him as we stand apart. For there is but one name given to men under heaven by which we may be saved. And his name is Jesus.